1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I just spoke with Janice Neary about her really beautiful and very engaging recent book. The Insect and the Image, Visualizing Nature in Early Modern Europe, 1500 to 1700. That was published in 2011 with the University of Minnesota Press. Now, this is a book that uses a very focused case, the the case of images of insects in early modernity, to talk about and to raise issues and help us rethink much larger categories and rethink the way we think in categories and rethink Uh, how we might not take certain categories for granted in our thinking. Um, So this is a, a tall order, but one that is done really wonderfully in this book. Now, the categories that Mary asks us to rethink include art and science. They include amateur and professional. They include image and object. And she uses this very um, distinct case of insect imagery to show how, in the work of uh, uh, not just a handful, more than a handful of artists who were working with and thinking with insects across early modernity, the sort of boundaries between the sort of fine arts and decorative arts, artistic and scientific practices were really blurred, and the ways that some of these artists manipulated the way audiences thought about those categories by using a kind of visual rhetoric that really also helped them create certain kinds of professional personas. So this is also about um, not just changes in visual rhetoric or changes in the way the arts and the sciences came together in the figure of the insect in early modernity. It's also about transformations in the way practitioners were crafting their own personas in this context. It's really, really interesting. It's a beautiful book, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Janice. Hello, Carla. We're here today to talk with Janice Neary about her recent book, The Insect and the Image, Visualizing Nature in Early Modern Europe, 1500 to 1700. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Janice, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So Janice, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to this field, or rather to the confluence of fields that you work in, uh, visual studies, art history, and history of science?
0: There are a lot of different fields in there. Well, I um, was an undergraduate major in history, so I came to this from the field of history originally. And as an undergraduate, I was very interested in art. I took a lot of studio art classes and became interested in larger questions having to do with representation. And that brought me into graduate school in visual studies. So I got my PhD in visual studies from UC Irvine. And while I was there, I got very interested in the field of the history of science because I became interested in uh, the kinds of imagery that, uh, that show up in the book, natural history imagery in particular. So, um, kind of a lot of different academic training went into the kinds of questions that I was interested in.
1: Now, the book focuses on not just natural history images in general, but one particular kind of natural history images, and that's insects. How did you settle on insects as the topic of, uh, of the study and as your focus for this work? Well, just such a
0: fun topic was one of them. (laughs) Um, But uh, for the more serious answer was the book started as a dissertation and uh, casting about for a dissertation topic. I was very interested in early modern European images of the natural world, um, interested in the question of representation, both as a historical topic, art historical topic, and something to do with visual studies and science. Um, And I started thinking about still life paintings a lot, because I found them so boring, (laughs) not not knowing too much about still life paintings. I thought, why would anyone make those or study them or have them in their house? They're so boring. They're just these boring pictures." And that, of course, made me realize, wait a second, there's something going on there. I obviously don't know anything about them. So I started thinking about still life paintings. And there's so much literature on still life painting. And it's it's very complex and very, um, uh, you know, it's very deep in so many different areas. But I just had the realization that, oh, you know, not too many people talk about these insects that are crawling around the corners of the still life paintings. And that opened up a whole world for me, a whole topic that um, that I really hadn't known was there. So, um, so still life paintings were the entryway. And then it, of course, expanded to natural history illustration and um, specimens and material objects and um, collections of curiosities, of course, too. That's a big part of it.
1: Great. And we'll talk about um, many of these genres in turn as we get into the, the body of the book too. So you mentioned um, just before that this did start off as a dissertation. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that transition? What was the transformation from dissertation to book like for you? Were there any kind of major transformations that needed to happen or major changes or what was that process um, like? right it was um, definitely painful
0: <laughs> <laughs> for many of us that's... <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean it was it, um, so the, the the dissertation had four chapters in it and I knew interestingly I guess uh, the still life painting was what really drew me to the topic in the first place but my dissertation didn't have a chapter on still life painting mm-hmm. again because it was such a big topic I, I think I felt overwhelmed by it so um, the dissertation had four chapters without the chapter on still life painting so I knew that that I'd have to write that chapter. And it so that took me a while to do. I, I That was a completely new chapter, new area for me. And it took a long time to write that because um, I, you know, I had to review all that literature and really think about what I wanted to say about still life painting in particular, um, that could get that could connect to the larger topic of the insects. Um, and other than that, um, I, you know, I did the things you're supposed to do. I read the The book by William Germano from dissertation to book, which was extremely helpful and um, wrote a lot of book proposals to try and figure out what, you know, what is this going to be? What's the what, what is a book as compared to a dissertation, trying to learn about, you know, the narrative, the through line, all of those kinds of things. And what really helped though were the external reviewers from the University of Minnesota press um, getting those reader reports back and getting the suggestions for re- revisions. They were very pointed and uh, very kind of hard to to address because they were very you know they they had very good criticisms and very good suggestions for me but and and having to address those and do more research and do more writing. So I think that almost every chapter got rewritten um, in response to those those uh, uh, the feedback from the external reviewers, the peer reviewers, and um, really having to kind of focus the argument and uh, and make sure that all the chapters are focused on that, that that idea of, well, sort of of different ideas, but one of the ideas that really came about from the review process was thinking about the persona of the artist as something that needed to be thought about the persona of the practitioner. And I hadn't really thought about that in the dissertation, but it had been there, but bringing that out and putting it in the forefront with each chapter.
1: And that does actually wind up being a really central thread throughout the entire book in different ways. So, and we'll definitely talk about that as well. So in the book, um, you take us through this transformation of the way insects were used over the course of um, part of early modernity. So prior to the 16th century, you you mentioned that insects are included in uh, some visual texts about nature, but they're mostly in the margins, whereas Mm -hmm. over the course of the early modern period, they shift from the margins to the center. And it's the shift and the consequences of this shift of Insects to the Center um, for helping us rethink the categories of art and science in early modernity, um, among other things, the persona of practitioners who are working with what we think of as distinct categories, but perhaps what we ought not take for granted um, are distinct categories, as you show, that really form the basis of the book. Um, So let's get into the nitty gritty of the book. (laughs) Now, one of the major, um, sort of starting from the introduction and where you're laying out some of the basic categories and concepts that are going to be central to how we understand um, the chapters thereafter and the individual artists and works and notions um, that those chapters will express for us. In the introduction, you bring up the concept of specimen logic. Mm. And this is very important. So specimen logic, you argue dominated the approach to depicting insects in the early modern period. So to start us off, can you explain this? What is specimen logic and um, can you say a little bit about that as um, as it shapes the story here?
0: specimen logic, that was another happy um, development from conversations with editors uh, that the executive editor that I was working with at University of Minnesota Press actually suggested that phrase to me in conversation about the introduction and i it really made a lot of sense to me The 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 idea of specimen logic. So specimen logic, it can have a couple of different aspects to it, visual and uh, not visual. Um, But it, it, to me is this process of taking parts of the natural world or things from the natural world and transforming them into specimens that can happen in visual terms. And the image I use to talk about that a lot in the introduction is the Durer stag beetle image. Uh, that iconic image of the stag beetle kind of rearing its head um it's placed against a very plain white background um, it casts a shadow and it has no real markers of its habitat other than. This shadow. So it's an it's a piece of nature. It's an animal in this case that has been taken completely out of context and placed into this space of uh, contemplation, a space of study, a space where it can be taken out of uh, whatever context and circulated into different realms. So it happens through this visual image. Um, the other part of it is uh, are things that can be that are familiar to people. You know, talking of, who talk about collecting and talk about the history of science in general for this period, um, which is that that idea of nature as an object. Nature is something that can be possessed, um, turning nature into objects and specimens being um, a a particular kind of object.
1: Now, you mentioned here, um, or as you just mentioned, images according to specimen logic, are increasingly decontextualized. They're taken Mm -hmm. out of their original habitats, and they're entered into networks of circulation and also of exchange. Now, the notion of exchange is also something that comes up right at the beginning of the book, and it's something that remains extraordinarily central to the argument of the rest of the chapters in the book. You argue here um, for us to understand exchange, not just in terms of physical movements, but also virtual movements and virtual practices. So can you say a little bit about the the centrality of exchange, how you understand exchange um, as it's shaping the way you're thinking about these phenomena? And um, can you say a little bit about this notion of not just physical exchange, but virtual exchange as it's shaping the story?
0: Yeah, I mean, virtual exchange. I it, I think that runs the. <laughs> I use that as a central organizing concept for one of the chapters that uh, on uh, Thomas Moffat and Ulysses Aldervandi. and I I struggled with that a bit because, of course, it can be an anachronistic term. It's uh, you know the idea of virtual specimens and virtual collections is something that we're more familiar with as present day uh, people rather than that being the terms that sixteenth century people might have used. But I, it was you know it was a term that was very useful for me for thinking about exchange and just as you say, um, people who were both exchanging um, objects and sending specimens to one another over um, small geographical areas within Europe, but also to non-European locations and receiving specimens from non-European locations. Um, so there's that you know specimens and images work somewhat interchangeably in that in that situation, uh, but then also within individual collections and within the thinking of individual practitioners, it seems like there is a a loosening (laughs) that that can happen, a loosening of thought and a loosening of of categories that, that happens in the very construction of those categories. So insects seem like a good focus for the way that Mentally, people can begin to take the natural world apart, parse it into individual parts, uh, parse it into uh, sections that are made to be exchanged or made to be entered into circulation. Um, so I, I kind of get wrapped up in, <laughs> in talking about both the differences between images and objects and the ways that they don't have differences between them sometimes. And, and it's all, not always clear to me <laughs> sometimes what we're talking about, uh, you know, is it an image or an object?
1: <laughs> and I think this actually speaks to a larger kind of work and a really important kind of work that the book does um, on many levels and, again, throughout the study. It's not just are you – so images and objects, rather, represent one of several kind of binaries almost Mm. that we tend to take for granted. And then it seems that you're arguing here that this – looking at this particular context, looking at not just early modernity but the ways that insects are used um, as a kind of a tool for reshaping Artistic personas and the categories that they are bleeding into, this all helps us perhaps challenge um, what we take for granted as binary. So, images and objects being one of those, but also um, you're talking about the uh, sort of recrafting the binary between perhaps professional and amateur artists, so professional and amateur practitioners, and also more broadly you're at a kind of uh, major meta level, art and science.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what came to mind too. I, I I think that you're right, and I that's a helpful way to describe it too, because I think sometimes in my own thinking, in writing this book and speaking about the the subject matter, that these binaries can be confusing <laughs> the, the just the ones that you you listed They can be confusing when you're actually trying to think through what the images are doing and how people are using them how people are making them and and so uh, you, you know you, you start to introduce a third term often and you, and, and you start wondering well how, if it's a binary how do i get that third term in there so you know an example of this is um you know, Albert Durer could be one, or Uris Hofnagel, who we'll talk about with chapter one, but that going back to that stag beetle image, Um, You know, is it an image or an object? Why does it have to be one or the other? It's an image of an object. It's an object in itself. The drawing itself is an object. Um, The materiality of the paint on the paper, that starts to be both image and object at the same time. And so I I think you're right about the binaries being taken for granted, but at the same time, uh, they're really important to structure how you how you start to think about these things and and, and, in your approach. Um, But also within the, so the image object, professional amateur um, art and science ultimately was something that I, I I often struggle with as a, as a, a set of categories in which to fit these items. But also the question of observation, Um, what's happening with observation and how, how are you observing nature when you're looking at an image like this stag beetle image, say Mm -hmm. Um, are you replicating a series of observations that an artist made or are you being brought along a path that the artist is constructing for you, which is not necessarily the same path as he or she might've taken in making their own observations. So it's, it's complicated and that's why I love it.
1: <laughs> and it's sort of a, I mean, you make the point in the book that um on just taking one of these binaries, the opposition between art and science mm. is a product of rhetoric, right? That's, that was actually actively designed to serve the purpose of certain individuals. And I think what mm. you're bringing into the conversation is also that there's a kind of visual rhetoric, um, right? That's a, another way for us to think about the ways that these artists are Actively kind of manipulating the way their audiences and the way we are thinking about these categories in their choice of how to depict these insects.
0: Right. I think that 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 idea of the visual rhetoric is a really important one. And it brings us back to why the subject matter and, you know, what is different about these. Images of insects that I've chosen in this book, as opposed to botanical imagery or images of other parts of the natural world. Um, And I think that the reason I use the insect as a way to enter into a conversation about that visual rhetoric is because they do... um, carry with them certain types of visual practices that are really important to the things that we've been talking about like why is, a, is an image of an insect able to be entered into the context of, um, of, of, of being exchanged in the context of a collection of rarities it's because of the visual rhetoric that is used in some ways uh, meaning uh, extreme delicacy of execution of, of, um, of the drawing uh, You know, the use of bright colors in the paint, the use of precious material if it's painted on vellum, if it's painted with um, or in a, uh, on um, special paper, fancy paper, for lack of a better term, um, those kinds of elements of visual rhetoric, I think, are really central to this, too, or I try to make them central to it.
1: So let's let's get right into um, into the examples that you give us in the body chapters. The book is separated into two parts. And part one of the book looks at the emergence of insects as subject matter. So the, the book itself is organized both thematically and chronologically. And part one consists of three chapters that are focused roughly around the period 1580 to 1620. And then when we get to part two, then we'll get to later on in the 17th century. So the emergence of insects as subject matter in part one is interwoven with the crafting of identities around insects in three types of materials, illuminated manuscripts, natural history illustrations, and early still life painting. Chapter one brings us into the work of um, someone who you've just mentioned, Joris Hufnagel, who is a Flemish artist um, who did really arresting and just fascinating work that involved both what we might call real, and I'm using sort of air scare quotes here for (laughs) listeners, insects, but also imaginary insects. So I I can't wait to talk about him. So can you talk a little bit about Hufnagel? Um, Who is he and why, what about his work fascinated you? Um, And can you talk about him in the context of this study?
0: Right. Yeah. Hufnagel is an artist who I was just... Very taken with uh, going back to graduate school and coming up with seminar paper topics and also getting to read. Uh, the extremely wonderful work on him by the scholar Lee Hendricks, who um, is a curator at the Getty and has written and wrote an amazing dissertation on Joris Hufnagel's Four Elements, which is a series of manuscript paintings that he did. Not about not just about insects, but also about um, other parts of the natural world. And I became really interested in his amazing manuscript that the Getty also holds, which is the, known as the Mira Miracallag. Monumenta, which is um, a model book of calligraphy that was a collaboration between Hufnagel and an artist who he never met, uh, the calligrapher jo- George Boschkei. And it's this incredible book that is just, you know, it's very, it's fairly small, but it is just full, full, full of the most amazing imagery and the most amazing examples of calligraphy. And what I discovered, I, I this wasn't my own discovery by far, But what I found out or I noticed when I was reading the facsimile was that so many of the insects were identified by the scholars who were compiling the facsimile as imaginary insects. But there wasn't much discussion of the imaginary insects. So that was really how I got hooked on (laughs) Hoofnagel, to to put it uh, in that strange way. Um, Why would an artist make imaginary insects and why would an artist create imaginary insects that were so... Real looking, so so um, immersed in that visual rhetoric of realism, of naturalism, of making things look real, uh, that that they were so real that they would fool your eye if you weren't a, a careful or attentive observer. So I think I got seduced by uh, by the quality of the images, just as a 16th century viewer was meant to.
1: Great. Now, the chapter uses Hufnagel's work and this particular um, aspect of his work that you're talking about to explore the notion of order as elaborated in the work of Foucault, and in particular, Foucault's description of epistemes in the order of things. Um, So what I'd love to, um, if you could do for us, is to talk about two aspects of this. First, um, can you talk about the centrality of Foucault, especially his work in the order of things, the way you're thinking about um, these phenomena in this chapter in particular. And in particular, you mentioned the importance of screening um, mm-hmm. as a notion that shaped um, Hofnagel's work and his decision of how to work with insects. So can you talk about those things for us? So why Foucault? Why is Foucault mm-hmm. central here? And also um, screening in particular, what is that? And can you talk a bit sure. about that?
0: Yeah, well, going back to the idea of the transition from dissertation to book, I think that these are probably the most, um, the most leftover parts from that graduate school process, not that they're not super important to me. Um, But Foucault was a writer who I struggled with in graduate school, uh, as most people do when reading Foucault, but um, who I loved and struggled with, but also got really confused reading about his ideas about natural history. Uh, Most of those ideas in the order of things are focused on 18th century materials, um, but really trying to take those ideas seriously when looking at the 16th century. And it just seemed like uh, there were these functions happening that he talks about with screen and focusing on um, very small parts of the natural world in order to create order, um, and that, that seemed and that that's sort of what he talks about with screening. And um, but that seemed to be happening from what I could see very early, at least in the images. So Foucault was a really important touchstone for me for thinking through some of the the larger questions that I was interested in. Um, and screening also, you know, I don't, I don't think it comes out in the book, but that was. Uh, So the concept comes from Foucault and I use it in a certain way in the book, but it was also a really important, uh, conceptual idea that I got in graduate school by studying with a film studies scholar the late ann friedberg who wrote about sc- screens a lot she um, talked about the concept of the screen in visual culture and in film in particular so you know trying to think about how to how to think how to conceptualize that ordering process that is so dependent on narrowing things down and taking very small parts of nature Nature to represent a whole uh, but at the same time why those processes might have been masked uh, why, why were they supposed to be taken for granted or taken as reality um, so hoofnagel is an artist who's Whose, whose visual images really do that to an extreme. They, they take just the most special, specialized parts of the natural world, uh, turn them into these beautiful visual images, to, to, turn them into these beautiful visual objects, which appear to be resting on these pages that are filled with amazing calligraphy and the most intricate imagery. Um, But at the same time, we're not, as a viewer, you're not supposed to be made aware of those processes. So I think that's why, uh, that's why, that's the kind of the long answer to why Foucault and how Foucault um, connects to that.
1: Now, who was Hofnagel's intended audience and how did that shape his decisions about how to depict these insects? Loofnagle
0: well, was uh, an artist who worked for the elite. He the the manuscript, the Mirror Calligraphy Monumento, which is the the work that contains the imaginary insects that was made for the emperor Rudolf the second and Hofnagel uh, never actually moved to Prague. He was in the service of the emperor, but he, he worked elsewhere. Um, and it, it's, I don't, I don't know as much as I'd like to about that, his working practices, but this manuscript that I've been talking about was a collaboration between Hofnagel and, and the calligrapher um, that happened without them ever knowing one another because the manuscript was in the possession of Rudolf II had been, had, had, had been um, had had the calligraphy put in it <laughs> or made for it and then some years later it would, the manuscript was given to Hofnagel to work on so he ha- um, he was definitely working for this particular audience, very elite, very educated people um, the the emperor and the people around him who were interested in rarities, who were interested in collecting, um, collecting nature of course, that whole uh, side of things and And so it was an audience who needed to be needed to be wowed. They needed to be um, connected with on a a fairly sophisticated level.
1: Now, as we move into the next chapter of the book, we move into um, two other figures who form the central uh, basis for this chapter. Chapter two looks at moves from looking at, um, sort of one central figure to bringing our attention explicitly to communities, to communities yeah. in particular of artists, artisans, and naturalists that coalesced around the study of insects and natural history. In particular, in the work of two figures um, and the kind of communities that they embodied and that they marshaled for their work. These two figures are Aldrovandi and Moffat. Cool. So. These two figures, um, they're, one of the things that you bring out here that was very important, um, to both of them is that they both were trained as physicians. Mm-hmm. And medicine, as you're arguing here, in really, really interesting ways influenced the way they decided to visually depict insects. So can you talk, um, a little bit for us about these figures? Um, how did Aldrovandi and Moffat um, how did their background in medicine shape the way they decided to approach insects as subject matter in this context? Right,
0: Alder was trained in medicine, and uh, as was Moffat, and I think that because uh, because they were both. Working in medicine in the late 16th century, when medical practice was experiencing a profound change in the way that people were trained, as well as how people were thinking about it, um, that materia medica was a really important part of of medical training at this time. So studying plants, collecting plants, uh, becoming familiar with um, botany generally, and not relying necessarily so much on theory. And I mean, I know that this, uh, you know, theory. Of, of Galen uh, the galenists and the um, non-galenists that was a you know an, an important debate uh, but i think just so i mean and history of medicine is not my primary field of course so other people have examined this in much better detail um, but just generally this interest in collecting nature and uh, working with the materials of nature in both botanical gardens as well as um, botanical uh, collecting i think that that seems to be where they Entered into that world of collecting nature and working with nature in a material way, in a material practice. Um, I think that insects for both of them were were because they fell outside of that kind of practice might have posed. a a challenge and an opportunity and also presented an opportunity to say something new about something uh, about an aspect of the natural world. So because botany had had such a rich tradition already in the later 16th century, um, insects had, had something to offer that was outside of that. So it's kind of a fertile research area for both of them.
1: And one of the really interesting things that this chapter does is that you're showing, Um, the ways in which images and collections of images, so here I'm focusing on insects, really came to function as specimens, so as virtual specimens Mm -hmm. and specimen cabinets. Now, the way um, that this works, and one of the central notions that you introduce in this chapter in order to take us through this process, um, is the notion of cutting and pasting. This is a Mm -hmm. central motif. So can you explain how cutting and pasting works in this context, how, in what ways was this important for Aldravandi and Moffat?
0: Yeah. And I mean, another possibly anachronistic term, but very useful for me for thinking about what was happening um, in with both of these authors. Uh, one thing that uh, the larger question that, or the larger interest that I had in writing this chapter was in the the relationship between drawings and their published versions in printed books and um, looking at getting to look at original drawings and seeing how they, how that transition happens when they're translated into a woodcut and the the printed page, the published, the, you know, the published work. Um, So that was one way that, uh, images would travel or would be cut and paste uh, virtually that they would be cut out of a uh, different context and to be assembled into the, the page, the confines of the page of a printed book. Uh, but, you know, in other ways they could function, images could function as these virtual specimens Um, being able to be worked with in ways that actual specimens couldn't, they could show different angles of the same specimen. So front and back, if necessary, that's what we see a lot in the Aldervandi notebooks. There's images of the front and the back of a particular specimen. uh, And so that's a view that you couldn't show with just if you just had one specimen uh, of the insect. Um, and so the again, the idea of moving things around, being able to move um physically work with specimens or images that were standing in for specimens, moving them around within the pages of a notebook in order to uh, in order to order <laughs> the the emerging concept of the insect world, um, putting things into categories, changing those categories as necessary.
1: And that was actually really interesting. I mean, you're, um, one of the interesting things that's happening in this chapter is that you, as an author, are actually, if, and forgive me if I'm misinterpreting this, but (laughs) you're actually reconstructing the layout of a page, right? Um, so, (laughs) so in talking about, um, Al use of, uh, this cutting and pasting and the, the way this actually shaped his own classification of insects, you're actually bringing to bear your own um, cutting and pasting, right? Your own process. Right. So can you, can you say a little bit about that, about sort of your, your reconstruction of this page of Aldravandi? What did that involve for you? And I would just love to hear more about that.
0: Yeah, that was really fun. It was sort of uncutting and unpasting um, what happened. So I, for my dissertation research, I, I went to Bologna and I got to go through the notebooks of Aldervandi, um that are at the, the university of Bologna. And it's just, you know, the most wonderful thing to get to have the time to go through them. And I, um, I just sort of went through and transcribed everything, all the notations about insects to try and figure out you know, there were these lists of the images that were completed and lists of, where they, where the, where certain images were in the notebooks and then comparing them to the printed page. And there's this long, long list and just transcribing and transcribing and, and trying to match up where they went. And I noticed that, well, wait, this doesn't, it was, it was not matching up. And so I realized that this, this, um, this wooden, this plate, and let me see what image we're talking about here. I don't know if you have it in front of you. I it's
1: page uh, 37.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thirty, thirty-eight, maybe. Um, so i I realized that there was one page that kept being referred to in the notebooks, and I wasn't finding it printed page. So um, it, it was kind of a convoluted story. But but what I figured out was that. Um, originally, this image on page 38, figure 2.2, it had it, pictures of some butterflies, some moths, um, dragonflies, and then this, this insect in the middle of the page, which was, um, Something that he didn't seem to know what it was, so he called it uh, an, an insect in the form of a locust, but it combined different qualities to it. Uh, o. Papilio locustiformis so a butterfly in the form of a locust. So this was a, a, a basically a first draft of the of an image that would that would end up not being in the book. Uh, and because what he did eventually was he decided to put all of these insects in different categories. Uh, it seemed like at, at at this stage he was working. He was categorizing them all as winged insects, but then winged insects got broken down into another category of butterflies in a separate category, uh, dragonflies being put in a separate chapter as, and then the the winged the winged insect in the form of a locust that just got put in the back uh, because in a in a sort of a catch-all for insects that he couldn't figure out what category they should be in. So what I think happened is that based on the on this reconstruction, this was the original appearance of the woodcut. When Aldrovandi changed his categories or further refined them, he actually had the artisan break the wood cut apart, cut it apart, and use the different sections of that, that actual wood plate in different parts of the book. So the, they got cut apart and pasted virtually or recombined with other, uh, other images throughout the book to be in their correct or quote-unquote correct places.
1: Now, as we move, um, and I, I'll mention for mm-hmm. listeners, if, in case I haven't mentioned this already, that the image that um, we're just talking about here, which is actually, again, I'm, I'm sorry for 37, it was actually on 38. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of many really beautiful images in the book. And so I wish that we had um, the opportunity <laughs> to, to virtually project these for listeners. But um, right. this is perhaps a, a reason for listeners go out, buy the book, because <laughs> it's full of not just really interesting ideas, but really, really beautiful. Um, many, many very beautiful images of these works. So speaking of beautiful images, um, as we move into the next chapter, we move to the chapter that you mentioned earlier was actually something that you added to the Hmm. book um, in the transition from the dissertation to the manuscript, and that is a chapter on still-life painting. So at the turn of the 17th century, artists begin to include insects, which is a relatively new subject, into this relatively new genre of still-life painting. Now, you mention in this chapter that these paintings, again, moving to um, the issue of audiences and readership, as we we talked about in the case of Hufnagel, these -hmm. mostly had courtly and elite audiences, and that actually shaped um, the way insects were depicted in the paintings you mention here, you take us through a really wonderful account of collecting and cabinets of curiosities to show the ways that artists invoked the visual tropes from those contexts into the way they're depicting insects in order to satisfy the audience's tastes for collections and these rare objects and collectibles. So can you talk a little bit about that? How did this context of This larger context within um, sort of collections and cabinets of curiosities in which you're situating these still life paintings shape the way insects appear in this relatively new genre.
0: Yeah. And um, so the still life paintings, one thing that I had to figure out when trying to figure out how I'd address still life painting was, well, what what period of still life painting? Dutch still life painting of the seventeenth century is what we know more about. There's a lot more of those paintings, but Flemish still life painting of the earlier part, uh, the earlier, the late sixteenth century and the earlier part of the seventeenth century, it's a little bit smaller of a field and smaller of a genre. It doesn't have that same, and it didn't have that same patronage aspect as you were talking about. It was um, the early in the early days of the formation of this this genre, and as you said, it was for mostly courtly and elite audiences. The 17th century still life painting that we associate with the Dutch Golden Age um, and the expansion of the art market into upper or upper middling incomes uh, um, and, a, and away from an exclusively courtly or church, uh, you know, an elite patronage structure. Uh, that wasn't quite the context for these paintings. Um, so that that was helpful for me when I finally realized oh, these still, the still life paintings that insects are starting to appear in around 1600, that's a very different context. And as you were saying, that audience shaped the taste for insects. Um, and so I was trying to figure out, well, if you look at a still life painting from this period insects often appear in them and but what else do insects appear with well they seem to appear with shells uh, and sometimes with coins and of course the beautiful bouquets of flowers that are um, the central focus of most of the the paintings that we're talking about Um, and so how did that context shape how insects were depicted one example and again I'll I'll take a visual example it's on page 84 it's a painting by Balthasar van der Ast um, who was part of the family of the uh, part of the circle of Flemish painters who were active in this period Um, and he often had insects in his paintings. Uh, In this painting there's a central luscious gorgeous bouquet of exotic flowers, uh, tulips, roses um, all kinds of different flowers that that bloom at different times of year this is something that uh, scholars on still life painting, have, have noted, and it's a really important part of uh, what's happening here. Uh, there's a now I can't remember. I think it's a Katie did on the left of the bouquet, and it's it's taking us. Uh, it has this long, slender, pointed body, and it's placed right next to a shell uh, that has the same kind of tapering body. Um, and they're they're obviously meant to be seen together. Meant to, and the the viewers meant to explore those visually. Note those. Patterns that are uh, um, note the shapes that are similar. Uh, think about the te- the way that the textures might be similar. The you know the hard shell of the insect paralleling the hard shiny shell of that exotic um, object next to it. And um, so thinking about that context, thinking about the ways that artists would choose insects to uh, um, to appeal to the tastes of collectors, they would do much the same thing that Hofnagel was doing in the pages of his illuminated manuscripts, uh, choosing insects that were um, beautiful, um, had contained beautiful patterning or beautiful colors, or had particularly complex shapes about them that would serve as Good vehicles for displaying artistic skill, um, and uh, and also visually interesting that would benefit from uh, so uh, shapes that would or forms that would benefit from extended looking and extended um, visual contemplation or study uh the other big part of the chapter does try and look at the artistic lineage that insects were um sort of brought into um that there was a tradition of depicting shells as well as flowers again in the botanical uh, and botanical context as well as the uh, other context of uh, books of flowers and images of flowers and that so that's another aspect of
1: the chapter <laughs> But but Um, the image 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 that you just invoked uh, and in the way you invoked it, sort of describing the importance of the placing of the insects and the shells and the petals sort of next to each other, it really also evokes um, the importance of juxtaposition that comes out in literature on cabinets of curiosities, right? Where where it's very important, um, not just what's in the cabinets, but how they're ordered. And it seems like, Um, for very similar reasons to what you're describing in these still life paintings that's really interesting
0: yeah and all and you know all of the amazing literature on c- collecting in the early modern period and uh, cabinets of curiosity all of that was you know in, in come that all reading all of that really came into these these considerations of still life um, and going back to that concept that you brought up earlier the idea of the binary and uh, struggling against the binary categorization here you know the the still life paintings did that for me too they function at the, at the same time uh, as they're functioning as a two-dimensional visual image, they are... Um, they're also oh am i still in there sorry yeah thank you. <laughs> you can still tell me sorry my computer did something weird um, so at the same time that they're functioning as a two-dimensional image they are at the same time a three-dimensional image that is subject to collecting so part of the chapter talks about early you know 16th century still life paintings uh, that functioned as panels in actual cabinets of curiosities or or panels in other countries of furniture that would have housed uh, perhaps um, apothecary jars or kind of precious natural uh, substances of some type.
1: Now, as we move um, from this context to part two of the book, we move to later in the 17th century. So part two considers a context in which insects are no longer new subjects as they are in the cases um, that constitute the chapters in part one, but they're still exotic and they're exotic objects in particular around which Practitioners are developing new identities, new professional personae, and new visual strategies. So, this um, set of contexts in part two takes us into the ways that uh, a handful of artists, in particular um, two figures, Hook and Marion, engage with the importance of exchange and global commerce, and also engage with the decorative arts in different ways. So chapter four focuses on the work of Robert Hooke. Now Hooke is famous for his work Micrographia, and the Micrographia and images from the Micrographia may be familiar to listeners. But one of the really exciting things in this chapter is that you've also found what you argue is another set of sketches that were pre- previously unattributed, but that are actually um, done by Hook. And they they let us really kind of see the transition from observation and sketch to the published images in the Micrographia in a totally new way. So this was super exciting for me. Um, can you talk a little bit? Can you talk about this, this sketchbook and these previously unattributed sketches? and um, and tell us a little bit about them and their importance for this story. Right.
0: I mean, that that was so exciting for me, too, um, for the reasons you were talking about. And to go back to my interest um, when we were talking about Alder, Day, and Moffat, being able to compare original drawings to uh, published drawings is, is so interesting and important, too, when trying to think about how... Different writers or practitioners are using visual images to think through concepts, uh, larger concepts too. So yeah, so this this notebook it was it's it's in the British Library and it is uh, mostly known for the sketches that were done uh, a little bit later in the um, in the early 18th century by a man named John Covell. Who was in, an Englishman who traveled abroad and used this notebook to um, he traveled mostly to the Middle East I think and used the notebook to um, sketch and make notes about a lot a lot about insects um, but somehow you know I was, look, I was so I was just looking through it at the um at the advice of i think it was it was Bill Sherman who had said oh you're interested in insects there's this notebook by John Cowell has insects in it so I just was looking at it. And I had been really deeply engaged with the micrographia as well because of the subject matter. I knew I had to say something about that book. It had a lot of pictures of insects. And it was really important. Um, and so flipping through, well, paging through the coval, I came across the, these pages that just didn't fit the style. They didn't look like the rest of the drawings. And... Um, They were clearly done in an earlier hand. And one image in particular caught my eye. So there's a page of the notebook, which is reproduced on page 126 of the book. It's figure 4.8. And um, I was looking at that, and the insect in the lower right corner Really caught my eye, and I thought, I've seen that before. I've seen that before. Where have I seen that before? And I realized, oh, I've seen it in Hook. I've seen. I know that that, that insect is in Hook's book. And um, so that was that was the realization. It was kind of like, oh, I've been reading the right thing at the right time. <laughs> I had been reading Hook, so that that's why I was able to recognize this one insect. And um, so what I what I figured out was even if, if I think it's legible in the image here. Um, But at the very, very corner of that inscription next to the insect he says that is a kind of tick found creeping upon paper, um, you can see the initials RH there. Um, It's dated April, um, I think it's April 11th, 1661 RH. So I thought, whoa, Robert Hooke, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, um you know, it wasn't until later that I that I was trying to figure out, well, what am I going to write about with Hook?" and I should look at the original drawings for the micrographia. obviously. I didn't realize until later that oh, they're not available. you know they' they're, they don't exist anymore. Um, so that that really got me excited about this image that oh, it's one of the few preparatory drawings or early sketches that we have that we can link to the later uh, later famous published images.
1: So, how did Hooke transform his observations from the sketches to the pub- published work in Micrographia? Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the um, substantial changes and how are those changes important for what this chapter is doing?
0: Mm-hmm. It, and it gets back to that larger question of persona, which is really a, a huge focus of this. This chapter in particular. Um, well, what I what I discovered was that not only did this page have uh, sketches of insects viewed through the microscope um, by Robert Hooke, but throughout the inscriptions there are also other initials here. DC, um, there's ET. Uh, other people seem to have been collaborating with Hook when he was doing these observations. And if you look at the associated entries in the published version of Micrographia, there doesn't seem to be any mention of these other people making observations. So that was very, very interesting (laughs) that when um, this eventually went to print and these are not preparatory drawings, I should say that these are just early sketches. Um, But when these eventually went into print, Hook, uh, at that point, uh, excised these references to other people um, in order to present himself as a sole observer, uh, and the reasons for that, or a solitary observer, and the reasons for that are numerous. One being his position at the Royal Society uh, at the time that the book was published, as opposed to this earlier moment when he was working collaboratively with other people, wasn't presenting the research in the context of the Royal Society, and might not have needed to have that, um, have that authority vested completely in his own his own persona um, that it wasn't, it wouldn't have been a problem earlier because he wasn't presenting to the Royal society. It wouldn't have been a problem that he was collaborating with other people and relying on other people's observations. Uh, But later when he had this more, um, more fraught let 's say social uh, professional position where his observations needed to be his own um, they 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 no, no longer appear in the published version. Uh, the other thing that happens of course visually is that he makes he makes revisions to the image that, um, but what what was really interesting about this tick or the crab like insect as it's as it 's referred to in his book. Is that in the entry in the book in Micrographia he he states that I only saw this image this insect once. So he constructs this whole story, or he relates this whole story about how he was sitting in his study and this insect happened upon the page and it skittered across the page and uh, being very uh, observant and being always at the ready. I took out my microscope and I looked at it and I observed it and here's its beautiful form. It looks like gold and all these all this beautiful description of The insect body, but he does say I only met with it once. So to me, I mean, I've been in conversations with other scholars about of of Hook's life since then, who uh, who've been asking, well, maybe he did see it again, and I, I I can see that that maybe that was a literary construction, and he maybe did get to make other observations. Um, of, of the insect, but, uh, that does connect it pretty clearly to these, this preliminary sketch in the, um, in the sketchbook that I noticed, and there are differences between them. So at the very least it shows, well, he's, he's making revisions, he's constructing his final images and, uh, definitely revising and, um, and redoing them if for the, for the, the context of print, um, so it's just another example of how uh, practitioners in the early modern period often use this rhetoric uh, and visual as well as literary rhetoric of um, being just the the amanuensis of the microscope or just a, a, a an observer who is not interfering with the the phenomena they're observing, but there's many, many different layers of the of the conveyance of the observation that take place.
1: And you describe this, um, this rhetoric that Hook uses as a way for him to generate a sense of trust mm-hmm. among his readers. And this was something that was also of concern um to the final of uh, central figure in the final body chapter of the book. And this is Maria Sibylla Marion. She was also interested in different ways and perhaps using different kinds of materials. Um, She was interested in convincing her audiences that her observations are trustworthy. Now, Marion is a really interesting figure. Um, She, you you take us through her early story. It's a way to situate um, her major work she divorces her husband, she moves mm-hmm. with her two daughters and her mom to a Labadist religious community. She then leaves the community, she moves to Amsterdam, so, she goes to Suriname with one of her daughters. It's a really, really interesting story, but what the gr- the great thing about this chapter though is you're really you're using this story to situate what goes on to be a really detailed and a really interesting study of her work
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and of the images and the context for the creation of those images. Now, um, I'd love to hear as we sort of come to um, this final chapter, um, if you could uh, speak a little bit to the importance of the different kinds of genres that she's working on in this chapter, which again brings up the... the. uh, recurring theme of sort of urging us to not think in these binaries. One Mm -hmm. of the things that you're showing here is that art, including the decorative arts and science were really intertwined in -hmm. Marion's practice rather than being central concerns. And in fact, her background in embroidery and needlework in the decorative arts shapes the way she depicts specimens in natural history drawings. So could you say something about this? Um, Marion and um, her work as a, a sort of uh, hybrid art science figure and the importance of the decorative arts and shaping her depictions.
0: Marion is such an interesting figure, and all of her biographical background make her a favorite for many scholars of early modern women's history, um, history of science also, and her biography has been uh, explored by a lot of different scholars. Natalie Zeman Davis's biography is, um, you know, fascinating for all the detail that it, that it presents about her. Okay. And so Marion herself is just sort of intrinsically interesting because of her life. And, uh, but one of the questions that I, I had was, well, um you know her the different parts of her life are t- seem to be talked di- about differently depending on the scholar's point of view. Um, for historians of science, it seems like well, her later work in her in her in, in her book on the insects of Suriname, um, that seems to be the more scientifically important book. Whereas scholars of women's history talk more about her earlier work and, you know, the way that she was embedded in uh, training of women, uh, education of women in needlework and uh, embroidery design and how she came from that context. And so for me, the question was, well, trying to think about Marion's visual output as a whole, um, how can we reconcile what she's doing later in the so-called more scientific publication of the the book about the insects of Suriname. Um, how can that be thought of as a whole with the earlier work that she's doing that's usually categorized as her, uh, her needlework books or her patterns? And that's, and that's, and there's other work along the way too that, uh, she, she did a very important book on the caterpillars of Europe, uh, that, uh, that is, is, uh, kind of straddles both of those. Um, so I was I was really just trying to figure out, well, how can we talk about her work as a whole when we're thinking about if, if the focus is on those visual images and how she's using particular visual strategies? So my point was just, I think the argument that I made was just that um, it seems like she's using similar visual strategies in both the early work as well as the later work. So it doesn't make sense to categorize one as solely having to do with art and decorative arts and one as fully having to do with science if they're both using similar visual strategies. So some of those visual, visual strategies are related back to the idea of specimen logic and um, the ways that um, con- um, decontextualizing parts of the natural world in order to make them uh, be able to enter into the context of circulation and exchange, um, how that happens visually. So in the earlier work, the needlework patterns, it seems like, Marion is really trying to present the elements in a very clear, unobstructed way so that they can be translated by embroiderers and people working with fabric and thread into designs um, that that can be. That can be made. Uh, that, that can that can use these elements in a very recognizable way. Uh, at the same time, there are what we would just dis- uh, describe as decorative elements. In other words, you know, scrolling stems, um, very um, balanced compositions, meant to use all of the all of the space on the page in a um, in a very elegant and yeah, as well as economical way. So when we, we, and, and I think we see those same kinds of visual strategies happening in later work that she produces, the insects of Suriname, um, very crisp edges, um, uh, very, um, uh, very decoratively laid out compositions, um, lots of concern for elegance and harmony and balance in those images, um, in similar ways to what we see in her early work.
1: And another thing i i we're, because I don't want to keep you for too long. I won't ask you to go into detail about this, but I just want to mention for listeners um, who might be interested in the themes of commerce and exchange. um, Those are very much, um, uh, those are very central to a lot of the chapters in this yeah. book, but in particular, you're showing in this um, chapter, and I'll just mention this for listeners, that Marion was also involved in the trade and exchange of specimens of natural history specimens in Amsterdam during the late 17th century. And that also, you talk about the ways that that also shapes her development as an artist. So again, um, another one of these major threads of the book. Um, No pun intended. talking (laughs) about embroidery, but pun sort of intended. So, Um, (laughs) but the thread of commerce um, and exchange uh, and and being central to her artistic development. I'm so glad you brought that up because
0: one could argue that Marion was first and foremost a businesswoman. She did not have... She didn't come from wealth. She had to support herself, and uh, she had to support. you know, her research was self-funded. Her research trips were self-funded, and um, she really had to be attentive to what could sell. And that's that's a part of the the chapter on Marion also that uh, that I that I argue that she's she's constructing these images with a particular audience in mind as well. Um, she she was familiar with the collections in Amsterdam, had visited them, and knew what her audience was looking for. So the image is in her Suriname book are um, definitely geared towards that. But she had to make a living and um, she had to, you know, she had to support herself and it was a business and um, there's, you know, she's got such a fascinating figure, but her daughters uh, end up uh, returning to South America and uh, with Karen, I, I, uh, I think her, one of the daughter's husbands also, and setting up a business where they, they're sending specimens back for, for selling in, in, uh, in Europe.
1: Well, so Janice, this has been um, really interesting for me. I think as we come to the close, because I don't want to keep you for two hours, <laughs> although we could. Um, I'll mention also just before we close up. Um, there's also a concluding chapter. So for in, for listeners and readers who are interested in the way the shape of these kinds of phenomena changes over the course of later natural history. So 18th and 19th century, you show in that chapter, the ways um, that the emergence of Linnaean taxonomy actually transforms Mm -hmm. the way insects are depicted in later work. So it sort of pushes us forward into future possible directions for Hmm. exploring this topic. Now, we we talked about a lot of the book, but there's a ton of the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. There's a, It's extraordinarily rich and there's a lot of detail. Is there anything else in particular that we didn't cover but that you'd like to mention, um, especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read it?
0: Um, I think we covered a lot of it <laughs> there. Um, I'll just kind of have a concluding thought. With, and it's actually not about my book, but about another person's book that I'm reading. I'm, I'm currently reading um, the the book, Picturing the Book of Nature, Sachiko Kusukawa's book. And um, I've been thinking a lot about print uh, because of that book. And so I think just, you know, thinking about and, and connecting it back to my book, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in that transition to print and the kinds of constraints, both intellectual and material, that happen when um, knowledge or observations, either of nature or uh, of the natural world or other things, have to be um, you know put down on paper. <laughs> we we do it ourselves as scholars, but what, what's happening in that transition? Um, you know, as, as you have to put things down on paper, um, that's I'll, I'll just briefly mention. One uh, little anecdote from the chapter on Aldrovandi and Moffat. Um, we were talking about community and uh, the the community, the virtual community around those two publications. But in the in the end, I, I noticed while well, there was a kind of a fracturing of community there too, um, in that uh, um, Moffat seems to have lifted Aldrovandi's images of silkworms and not attributed them to him either. So I, I you know, it's the same image. In both books, but uh, doesn't doesn't seem to note the the source of the image, and of course, there's a lot going on with copying, etc. There, uh, but I thought I wonder, you know, did think about that more in the context of having to print and having to publish and having to establish authority through this new medium of print, and how that affects how people think about their work and how you know what they what they're going to do with both images and text. <laughs>
1: So speaking of what people are going to do with images and text, yes. now that now that the book is out and congratulations, uh, what's next for you? What uh, what project is currently inspiring you? What's what can we look forward to reading next, or in, in the undisclosed future?
0: Right. Well, I'm at the very wonderful point of getting to just think very broadly and uh, explore different avenues. I've got I've got very interested in that connection between science and the decorative arts that we were just talking about with Marion. So I'm hoping to work more on that in the 16th century and uh, 17th century materials. I have some other publications that deal with those topics. The te- the topic of decorative arts and science in the 18th century. So I'm hoping to look uh, more into the earlier Connections between those two areas. Um, the, the work I've done the most on, or the most reading on, is the early 17th century in France, and um, looking at some connections between the royal, uh, the royal embroiderers in early 17th century France, and the construction of the botanical gardens there too, and what they had in common. So, science and the decorative art seems to be where I'm hoping to to explore more. <laughs>
1: Sounds great. And thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. This was really fun and best of luck with your new work.
0: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to get to talk about my book and thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.